following presentation is part of a six-week class titled Introduction to Mindfulness. The class is offered at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome back. Nice to see people back. And I know it's not easy to stick with our commitments, so I really appreciate that. People are returning and giving the practice six weeks. Some of you, of course, have been at it for a long time. And it's really appropriate to retake an intro class like this or basically to do whatever helps. Because, uh, as I mentioned the first week, this isn't uh, you know, force or the predominant expression of our culture is in the direction of distraction and denial And it's not in the direction of showing up and being clearly aware in this balanced way, in this relaxed way, with the way things are. It's uh, tragic, really, how dismissive our mind is about the present moment. It has a, I mean, not to be, I'm not trying to be negative, but it has an ignorant and arrogant sense that I already know this moment. Why do I have to pay attention? Why do I have to show up? Or why does the heart need to be interested and clear, clearly aware and relaxed when I already know it's not good or not good enough or not what I want or whatever we might think that is the habit of rejecting or denying or being disinterested in the present moment. So we have a lot of inertia to overcome. That's why there is a training. It's not that the practice is actually hard, but there's just a lot of momentum in the direction of distraction, whether for you that means worrying a lot or planning a lot or hanging out in your memories a lot or thinking about the future a lot or judging other people or judging yourself or just wondering, you know, even things that aren't so emotionally abusive, you know, but just wondering about things. I wonder what kind of wood they put on the floor here. What do they stuff these cushions with? You know, I wonder what that person's like. I mean, these things seem innocent, except they keep the mind in the world of thought and concept. And it's never ending. And in a way, in a very tragic way, we literally miss our life. Usually on the fourth week of the class, I um, cover some of the teachings about how to relate to obstacles in meditation practice. And then, of course, meditation practice is just a more quiet, simple expression of real life, right? So the way we practice in meditation, when we're formally sitting relatively still in a quiet place... It's the same way we practice out in the world. It's just out in the world there are more things happening and a lot of those things that are happening are really seductive, like somebody's talking to us. So it's really easy, easier to be caught, identified with words and ideas when we're engaged in a conversation than it is when we're just sitting in a quiet place. Or even... You know, it's interesting, like if you're sitting at an airport or some other place where somebody's speaking, but in a different language, maybe you're traveling and you don't know the language. It's like you can be very mindful 
of speech when you don't understand it. It's just like the chattering of birds, you know. It sort of doesn't... But when somebody, you're meditating and somebody's in the other room and it's not a good sound barrier and you're hearing, it's like not easy. The mind just clings to thought. It's really hard when thought is arising, whether it's thought arising in our mind or words arising outside through the ear door, through hearing. It's really hard for the mind not to get attached and then to think about the thought that was just heard or the word that was just heard. So we're, the whole practice really is a practice of working with obstacles. That's the, that's the point here. It's not like, oh, I need some strategies to work with obstacles so I can get back to my practice. The most important point is to understand that when obstacles arise, we feel restless or we feel dull or we're angry or fearful or aversive or we're greedy or lustful or wanting or we're just filled with doubt or confused. These are the five hindrances. It's actually a useful list to memorize. And I think it's in the handout that I sent uh, in the middle of last week for week four. Um, people received the handout for week four? So it lists the five hindrances in that handout. And it's just nice to memorize because then when you're struggling in your daily life or in your formal set, you can just ask yourself in a very straightforward way, or, well, are any of the hindrances present in the mind or in the heart now? And you can just rattle through that list. Is the mind under the influence of greed? Any of the expressions of greed. Is the mind under the influence of aversion? Any of the expressions of aversion, which includes things like impatience, that's a kind of aversion, fear, is an aspect of aversion, of course, hatred, rage, impatience. So there's lots of different expressions of aversion, not wanting things to be the way that they are. Is there any, is the mind under the influence of doubt or confusion, not knowing what to do, not knowing whether I'm doing it right? So... You can remember the five hindrances because there are pairs. There's too much energy, restlessness, too little energy, dullness. We have greed and aversion, a natural pair. Greed means you want something. Aversion means you don't want something. And then doubt or confusion. And, of course, we could organize the agitating states of mind in different, in different you know, ways. But you might as well just use this five category, like, Whatever it is that is arising to agitate our mind, we can put in one of these five categories. Or maybe it's, you know, a multiple hindrance attack, as we sometimes call it. So we're restless and greedy, you know, or restless and aversive, or dull and confused, doubtful. But anyway, it's a useful list because the naming prospect, recognizing that the mind is under the influence of doubt, is, of course, in the direction of being mindfully aware that it's like this now. Oh, this is just doubt being known. This is just anger being known. And there is a world of difference between being angry, being hateful, and knowing that there's hatred and it's like this. Knowing that there's dullness and it's like this. Knowing that there's restlessness in the body and the mind and it's like this. You see how that second way, it always comes with the sense of spacious open, allowing presence. 
that should just be hateful or to, to be the one who's doubtful. That means, in a sense, the mind is entrapped in that agitating emotional mental state. But then in a moment, when a moment of mindfulness arises, there can be the recognition, oh, it's just this being known. So, in Buddhist mindfulness practice, it's not so much that we're eliminating greed, aversion, dullness, restlessness, doubt from the mind. Although, clearly, those are unwholesome states. They're unpleasant states. But the way to gain freedom from those states, initially, is just to recognize them. That's the first step. If we immediately hate, like if we recognize the mind is under the influence of some unwholesome state, quality, and we hate it, well, then we're just, you see, we're just layering um, a negative or an unwholesome response to what is already unwholesome. I mean, it's really insane. I mean, I understand why I do that, why we do that. But when we look at it, it doesn't make sense to hate. Like if we're feeling depressed, and then, and then finally, we should be so grateful that finally there's a moment of recognizing, oh, I'm depressed, I'm feeling depression. And what do we do? Well, we hate our life for this yucky feeling that's arising. But maybe we could actually be interested in the experience, compassionate with the experience, clearly, mindfully aware that the depressive feeling is like this. Well, can this be okay? Meaning, can the mind, the heart, allow this to be? Not because I want it to be this way, but it's already this way. So to hate it is just adding additional tension on what's already heavy and hard to bear. So why not have a clear, open, in a sense, equanimous or neutral relationship with this? It's the same thing, you know, it's like, uh, it's not easy having a human body, you know, we're sensitive when it's too hot, we're sensitive when it's too cold. We're sensitive to that. When we're hungry, we're sensitive. When we eat too much, we feel that. But we don't, like, complain about having a human body. Right? And it's the same thing with the, the emotional states and the different mind states that come and go. These naturally arise in the same way that the different body experiences naturally arise. These states of mind come because there's a mind. (laughs) You know, there's a conditioned mind, a mind that has been set in motion through the different experiences that we've had in our lives. And so we don't expect it. We shouldn't expect it to be other than what it is. Because when you have a mind that's been conditioned like this mind, then when this happens, this is how it's going to be in the mind. Does that make sense? And this is really at the heart of patience, wise patience, not a kind of a dull, I give up patience, but a real bright, wise patience is this understanding, this very clear understanding coming out of wisdom that given everything, it can't be other than it is right now. I mean, we hear this and we just want to punch somebody, like people tell us, well, this is how it is, you know, or it can't be other than it is right now. But we want to understand it's not a way of saying we shouldn't do anything, we shouldn't respond to the moment. It just means that 
this moment is arising lawfully. It's not like somebody um, made a wrong turn. I did something wrong. I mean, in a sense, in a relative sense, we say, oh, I made a mistake and I cut myself with a knife. But that mistake, you know, what did that, what was that mistake? Well, there was music playing or, you know, something interesting on the radio or we were feeling emotionally upset because some difficult interaction happened earlier in the day and we were chewing on it and really weren't there in the, with the cutting of the vegetables. You know, if only I were paying more attention, I wouldn't have cut my finger. If only I didn't have that difficult interaction. If only I didn't have the job where that difficult interaction had happened. If only I had married that... You know, you could keep... And, and we realized that given all of those things, this is what happens, you know. That there's no, like, saying I shouldn't have done that because that experience, whatever one we're pointing to, it arose naturally from all the previous experiences, all the previous supporting conditions in that moment. Just like tonight, right now, if your mind is really bright and clear or heavy and dull, you could hate yourself or love it and be feel proud about how bright and clear your mind is. Or you could simply understand that, well, this is how the mind is now. Given everything that's happened before, then this is how it is. And the real question isn't whether it should be this way or not. Like from a Buddhist mindfulness practice, we don't argue about whether it should be this way right now. What we concern ourselves with is how best to relate to the way that it is now. Because it is this way now. So how best to relate to that? With a hard heart or with an open heart? With interest or with impatience or irritations or disinterest? You know, with wisdom or with some fixed view like it shouldn't be this way, this isn't fair. So the, the real heart of working with obstacles, first and foremost, is to recognize them. I, I think I gave you the acronym RAIN last week. Is that true? Yeah, so you can use this in your sit. Don't do it obsessively, but when you feel challenged by what's happening, maybe there's a lot of pain in your body, or maybe your mind just feels out of balance, too much energy, restlessness, or too little energy, really dull, really sleepy, or you're just really looking forward to something, Greed, or really irritated by something, aversion. So one of the hindrances, you, you have a lot of doubt, like, what am I doing? Why am I here? So one of the hindrances, so then you can use the four parts of the RAIN acronym. So if you weren't here last week, R is for recognize, A is for accept, I is for interest or investigate, and N is for non-attachment. And it's just a, a way of re-establishing that mindful balance when things get challenging in daily life and in your set. So just ask yourself to go move through these four tasks. Can the mind recognize what it is that's predominant, what it is that's arising in the field of experience or the field, the space of awareness, right? There is this, whatever you want to call it, mind space of awareness, 
And in that space of awareness, always experiences are coming and going. Have you ever had a moment in your life where there weren't experiences arising in the space of the mind or the space of awareness? Continuously. And even when apparently nothing is happening, still knowing is happening, right? And the interesting thing, I know it sounds a little funny to say this, the mind, the knowing mind can be aware that there's knowing even if it's not aware of what's being known, or it doesn't seem like anything's being known, but it is aware that knowing is there. It's like sometimes, I'll give you an example, sometimes you're with the breath, and let's say you have some really good continuity with your breath. You're feeling it coming in, you're feeling it going out, you've been practicing for a while, so you have some continuity, and as the body relaxes, becomes more tranquil, of course, the breath gets very subtle. Very, very subtle, actually. And then it can seem almost timeless. And it's almost as if the breath disappears or becomes so subtle that the attention isn't able to know it because it's so subtle, so quiet. But the mind still is aware. It's almost like the mind is knowing the space where the breath was once known that is currently not being known. And the knowing continues to know that space until the breath re-arises. So, there's always something arising in the space of awareness. So we just ask the mind, Honey, what is it that's being recognized? What is it that can be known? What is the mind knowing? Or what can the mind recognize now? What's predominant? Or you can go back to your anchor, you know? Can the mind know the next in-breath or out-breath? And then the next task, you can invite the mind. Well, can the mind, can the heart accept it? So feel free to use heart or mind when you're talking, reviewing the instructions for yourself. Can this heart accept what's being recognized or what's being known? What's being recognized cannot be accepted. Can it be, can it be allowed to be the way that it is? Not acting it out or not reacting, but just allowing it, accepting it. And then, you know, in a way, there are increasing subtleties, these tasks. So now the third task is, after we've accepted it, because if we just accept something, we can easily slide into too much tranquility. you like... So what do we ask this? Well, can the mind be interested in it? So not just accept it, allow it to be, but, but at the same time, be interested. And that's such an interesting dynamic between allowing something to be, accepting it, but not being disinterested in it. Generally, when we accept something, you know, then we were, we're ready to move on. But can we accept it but stay interested in it, moment by moment by moment? And remember... Interest isn't so much like, I'm going to put my attention right on you, object. I'm going to really know the breath. This sort of idea that I'm going to penetrate from superfici- superficiality to the heart of it. And that's, that's, although that might be, that kind of more aggressive, assertive energy might be useful when we're really distracted. Once the practice settles down, it's too rough. It's too um, effortful. So... Interest, even though it's an assertive, it is an active part of the practice to be interested. 
And remember, right at the, the first week, I talked about the easiest way to remember the practice is in two qualities, alertness and relaxation. Now we're talking it in four ways. Now we're grown-ups, so we get more sophisticated instructions. You know, we started out as kindergartners. Now we've progressed. But basically, that's nice, that split between what is tranquilizing and relaxing and allowing and what is assertive, like interested, investigating, understanding. These are assertive qualities of the mind, the mind that wants to know clearly how it is versus the mind that's letting go, that's allowing. Now, we need both in equal amounts. We need these developed, strong, strongly developed, these two qualities. So you see that playing out with the acceptance, the A, and the investigation or the interest, the I, in the acronym. So the I is the active part, the wholesome active part of the mind, and the A is the wholesome uh, receptive quality of the mind. So first we recognize that tends to be on the active side, right? Then we accept, then we investigate, then non-attachment. That's more on the receptive side. So there's a natural ebb and flow strengthening of the practice between these two qualities of assertive, energizing aspect of the practice, receptive, tranquilizing aspects of the practice. They work hand-in-hand together to deepen understanding. So I'll just say a few more words about uh, the non-attachment piece, the N in RAIN. And you could say non-attachment or non-clinging, whatever word feels right for you. But it's really at the heart of practice. The whole point of becoming intimate with the present moment is to realize a way of being, right? Normally our way of being with experience is to be tight, to be established in a a fixed view of things. And and it doesn't mean that we're physically still and tight. We can be the most, you know, flowing ballerina or whatever, but inwardly we can be quite tight, fixed, the mind fixed. So this, this fluidity really comes from the mind or the heart not clinging in any way to anything not clinging in any way to anything and meaning any thoughts, any experiences. So, in a, in a deeper sense, and that's really okay if you don't understand this, but I'll say it in case it's useful. In a deeper sense, there's no center to experience. So, now, right now, just look or have a sense of being here and having this experience of being in the room and, and hearing Mark talk and doing your best to understand what he's saying and feeling your body and things like that. And notice how, as we're all here, the mind has this very old, mostly unseen habit of imagining that there's a center to the experience that's being known here, right? Doesn't it feel like, whatever you're knowing now, doesn't it feel like I'm knowing it? Like there's a thing or a place, a one, who is having this experience that's being known. And that's just, it's an an aspect of view, what we call view in Buddhism. But it's a part of the conceptualizing process. The mind is, in a sense, continually conceptualizing a one 
to whom this is all happening, to whom, or whom is no, who is knowing all of this. Now, in the non-attachment, in the end piece, and again, don't worry if you don't understand this, the non-attachment, the non-clinging piece, it means that that activity ceases. So to practice non-clinging, non-attachment, means that the mind has realized this activity of imagining there's somebody, a center to whom all of this is happening, and it stops doing that imagining. And so now, life is still happening. There's still, in a sense, this person living this life. It's just that this person living this life in this moment, or in these moments, is not imagining that this life is happening to somebody. They're still living their life, making choices, talking, saying hello, doing whatever they do, but they're not doing this extra thing of constructing a sense of self, a sense of apartness or separation, and kind of orienting the whole story of what's happening around that sense of separation. Because that's what we do ceaselessly. It's the big habit. We are ceaselessly telling ourselves a story that basically is slightly, some slight riff on, this is all happening to me. I mean, that's our universal story. It's all happening to me. And then the, just the adjectives are different. You know, this cool weather is happening to me, or this depressive feeling is happening to me, or this interesting meditation class is happening to me, or this pain in my knee is happening to me. But that is happening to me is what's universal. I mean, some version of that. And it's so regular, such a repeated pattern in the mind, we've stopped recognizing it lifetimes ago, but certainly ages ago. It just happens on automatic pilot. This, So the not clinging is the hard thing to do because it's so established, it has so much momentum. So what really supports the end piece of our work is if we're recognizing and accepting and being interested, the mind moves towards a really profound balance. We call that, I think I mentioned, samadhi, or the unification of mind. It's badly translated as concentration, but we almost always associate concentration with being tight, you know, and focused. That's not the kind of concentration we're talking about. Samadhi, or unification of mind, is a very beautiful, relaxed, clear, balanced state of mind, where the mind is malleable, nimble. It's like really able to know whatever it is that's arising in the moment. And it's that subtle, balanced mind that can notice the unnecessary activity of selfing, of making the experience seem as if it's happening to somebody. And then when it's seen, then it can let, the heart can let go, the mind can let go into non-attachment into non-clinging. We can't make, the ego can't make the mind non-attached, non-cling. It's an insight. The mind has to see this uh, activity and see the uselessness of the activity, the unnecessariness of the activity, and then it lets go, or letting go happens, you could say. Letting go happens when that activity is seen. As long as the activity isn't seen, Non-attachment, non-clinging doesn't happen. So that's why we call it insight. This is an insight practice. We cultivate this profound, steady balance of mind so we can notice the unnecessary activities of the mind, the subtle, unnecessary activities of mind, 
And then we notice letting go happens. And then we notice the freedom that arises when that letting go happens. And then, usually, we notice attachment to the freedom arising. And we're back in the game of being an ego, thinking that that freedom happened to me. Right? Because once we feel some freedom, what do we do? What do you think you do when you feel a lot of freedom? You stop practicing. And that's the key, is when you feel a lot of freedom, don't stop practicing. Just notice that that freedom is just freedom. Recognize the freedom, accept it, be interested in it, and not attached. (laughs) Not clinging to the freedom. That's how it continues. Not by taking it personally and thinking that we've gotten somewhere. Because then we're back in a very heavy self-view again. I worked hard, my practice developed, and now I have freedom. Because as soon as it's me who has freedom, then I'm worried what's going to take it away. I better really not lose this momentum of my practice. And see, that fear of losing our concentration is the cause for losing our concentration. And people, this is like inevitable, when people's practice starts to kick in and hum along, they come to me or come to a teacher and they'll say something like, you know, I, I had this great experience and I tried so hard to get back to it. But trying to get back to it isn't the cause for getting back to it. Right? It's the cause for frustration. Wanting to get anywhere, even to some wholesome state, wanting itself is stressful. That's greed. Right? So this is the thing. Now, no, I know we're all here because we want peace. We want to be free from stress. That got us in the door to hear the teachings and to begin the practice. But that's not what we practice. Like when you're sitting, you don't practice wanting to be free of stress. I want to be free of stress. Nobody gives instructions like that. So the aspiration gets us to the class or gets us to the teachings, you know. But then once we practice, we have to put aside the aspiration, the desire to be free from stress, and we have to follow the instructions. Recognize what's present. Recognize either your anchor, like the breath moving in the body, or whatever's predominant in that moment. Accept it. Ask your mind politely, can this be accepted? Can the mind be interested in this? Can the mind be free of attachment, non-attachment, non-clinging with this? And if the answer is no, like you notice you continue to cling, then, then go back to recognize. Can the mind recognize this clinging, this attachment? What is it like? Where is it in the body? Does it have a location? Is it pleasant or unpleasant? Right? That's part of the recognizing process. Then once you feel like you've connected with it, can this be okay? Accepting. Can the heart be interested in it? Like, interest is really allowing for that continuity. That's the real heart of deepening your practice, is sustaining this balance, the tension. Not losing it. Not just a moment of being balanced, but sustaining that balance for moment by moment by moment, for seconds, maybe even minutes at a time when the practice develops. If you can be in that balanced state of mindfulness for a minute or two, things it will be in a different state of consciousness. It won't be initially, you know, in your first experiences, it will feel like something big has happened because it's not our normal state of consciousness to be mindful. Our normal state is to be distracted and superficial because of that distraction. So, any questions before we stretch our legs and do some sitting? Yeah, Mark. 
Do I accept when I'm feeling aversion or do I accept? Yeah. Yeah. The first thing you want to do, it may not seem like if we have pain in our knee and, uh, and initially we might want to pay attention to the pain in the knee. But I think what Mark is pointing to is that often the best place to pay attention isn't to the pain in the knee, but pay attention to the mind that doesn't like it, the mind that wants it to go away. Because actually that's more predominant. And this is hard. It's hard to know what's actually predominant. That's why it's nice to not assume you know and to ask the question, what's really happening here? What's predominant now? Or what's asking for attention? I really don't like this pain in my knee. That's different than the pain in the knee. That's that I really don't like it. Oh, this is not liking the pain in the knee. Well, can that be accepted? The fact that the heart or the mind doesn't like the pain in the knee. So now we're being mindful of the mind that doesn't like the pain in the knee. Now, once we make peace with the mind that doesn't like the pain in the knee, then it may make a lot of sense then to open to recognize the pain in the knee. But don't go first to the pain in the knee. Like your, maybe your question implied, go to the not liking of it, the aversion. Yeah, and get interested in the aversion until it's not there anymore. And then you can look at the pain if it seems predominant. But that might change too because sometimes the pain you're experiencing is 80% your aversion to the pain and 20% the actual physical experience in the moment. The not liking it compounds and amplifies the ordinary painful sensations sometimes many times above what the actual physical discomfort is in that moment. So let's, uh, yeah, one more and then we'll stretch your legs. Well, dualism actually comes up in little bits and pieces like it did a few minutes ago when I talked about non-attachment because, in a way, even an ordinary beginner having a moment of mindfulness, they're entering a non-dual state. Like, just to be, if I asked you to, well, I'll ask you, let's just touch something, you know, put your hand on something, you can touch the floor, or touch your skin, or touch your leg, and you might just close your eyes to make it easier. And it is possible now to allow the mind to become absorbed in that experience of contact or pressure. Of course, you'll need to be accepting and interested in order to gain some absorption, some continuity of mindful awareness. As if nothing is important but knowing the experience of pressure or contact. When you're ready, you can open your eyes. Well, that's just a little example, but maybe some of you noticed that to the degree that your mind let go of the concept of pressure or contact and was just there with the contact continuously, that's the 
key, like I was saying just a few moments ago. The real heart is that there has to be a continuity of mindfulness. Not just a moment, but continuously. Then the mind begins to enter a non-dual state. Because it's so fully present with contact, 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 that it's not conceiving of me knowing the contact. Or me thinking this is a stupid exercise. Or whatever conception it might create, which duality has to be constructed. There isn't actually duality. It is something constructed through the process of thinking and language. We create the sense that there is separation. There isn't actually separation. Any physicist will tell us this. You know, when a physicist describes the world, it, they describe it as a energy field. It's like there aren't, aren't any boundaries in that energy field between you and me and this and that. But that's not our psychological experience, right? We feel quite apart. But that's because the mind constructs that feeling and then gets confused by that construction and takes it as a reality, a fixed reality, an absolute truth. But it's so easy. Little moments of absorption, and if you are aware, you'll notice the disappearing of that dualistic state of mind into a state of wholeness. Anybody have that experience, just in that simple contact with the hand? Just me? Well, you can get it with your breath in just a few minutes. We're going to stretch our legs, so let's stand up. Release the tension. And while you're standing, I'm just going to take three minutes and talk about the walking practice. I, I know I said a few words, but not much last week. So... Did I say anything about walking last week? Did I give you a couple options of how to do it? About outside, in a hallway? Okay, and we're back and forth. Okay, you got the instructions. I don't need to say anything else then. Maybe after our set, if you have some experience walking, it would be nice to share it with the group. And that way other, maybe other aspects of the instructions will come out through your sharing and your questions about it. But for a moment, we'll just feel the body standing and feel free to stretch if you need to in any way so you'll be comfortable sitting for about 30 minutes once you sit back down. And so whenever you feel ready, you can come into your meditation pose. Listen to your body, do whatever you can to be comfortable, and feel free to use the chairs. I think there's still some extra chairs, and we can always bring more up if we need them. There's a real opportunity for kindness as we listen to the body and make adjustments and do what we can to be stable, comfortable, and a beautiful uprightness in the spine, nose in line with the belly button, ears over the shoulders. 
belly soft, the face and the eyes soft. Remember, you can practice with your eyes open, with the eyes just gazing down without fixing the eyes on anything in particular. Just let them be soft. Or you can practice with your eyes closed. Generally, if you're sleepy, it's better to keep the eyes open, or you can experiment at least with that. Take a deep breath or a couple of those long, easy deep breaths to support the settling. As if we have all the time in the world to fill and then to empty the lungs. And maybe one more time, in and out. And eventually let the breath continue on its own. You might find it useful to take a minute or two and practice being mindful with hearing. And this helps to bring up the receptive quality in the practice. Noticing how hearing is just happening. Practice not forgetting the hearing. And if you continue, you can use hearing as your anchor, or you can let the beautiful, receptive quality of mind now open to the experience of sitting. So feel the body sitting. The whole body, or the predominant sensations at this time in the body, Recognizing that the body, the sensations are like this now. Allowing them to be, accepting 
and being interested, intimate, and not attachment. See that the sensations coming and going, see how impersonal they are, coming and going on their own. Nobody is in charge of the sensations as they come and go. And just continue with the body as your anchor, or when you're ready, you can notice the breath moving in the body, and begin to work with the breath as an anchor for the attention. No matter the anchor that you train with, remembering we're cultivating a friendly relationship with our meditation anchor, connecting and sustaining this attention, using the acceptance and the interest to sustain mindful awareness. But whenever the distractions are quite strong, then let the mindfulness know the distraction as it actually is. So practice recognizing the distraction, accepting, being interested, and non-attachment. So we'll continue in silence for most of the set.
be willing to begin again and again. Remember the acronym RAIN. And this can help to reestablish this mindful presence with the anchor or whatever it is that's predominant. Being interested in the continuity of mindful awareness and what gets in the way of it.
and for the last minute or two, remembering that this is a practice of freedom. So being free with the experience as it is now. So if there's a lot of calm and pleasant states of mind, then practice being free, not attached to the calm and the pleasant states of mind. If there's a lot of physical discomfort, then practice what is the way, how can the heart be free with these conditions, these unpleasant sensations? What would that look like, that freedom? Being free with the experience as it actually is now. Stretch out your legs or whatever you need to do to feel comfortable. And we have about 15 minutes. I want to save just a few minutes to say a little bit about what we're going to do next week. But we have time. It's really useful to hear from people what you've been learning, what's been challenging questions you have about what was said tonight or just about the practice generally? Yes, and say your name, of course. Michael, wait for one second. Would you set that switch off above the thermostat on the wall there? Thanks, Darcy. Great. Go ahead, Michael. What was that last thing you said? And it's just, you know, the whole idea is to get a sense of what the mind is doing in those different activities of our life. And um, it's all about skillful means. What is the result of these means or these activities? What's the effect? And to think about our whole life as being, you know, like we're interacting with different kinds of medicine. And all the medicines come with certain benefits and certain side effects. And... It all depends on what is needed to keep this mind, this heart in balance so that 
we can continue on what in Buddhism we call the awakening process, right? Instead of doing what we've always done and getting what we've always gotten, we're interested in being on this path of awakening. And the real engine of this path of awakening is that balanced attention. Now, the difference between walking and sitting, there's you should just do what supports that balanced attention most. And for some people, walking meditation will be more useful. But if you're walking, and even though you might be getting a lot of release in your body from the aerobic exercise, but if your mind is just spinning in predictable ways, then even though you're going to get on a surface level, the body will feel enlivened from the walking, but you won't be changing anything in a deeper way. So the important thing is that we want to transform the mind because the mind is at the heart of the stress we experience, not our body. The body is the recipient of the stress we create. Yeah, yeah. And when you're walking, watch your mind. That's the important thing. Because you'll still get the aerobic exercise if you're being mindful of your mind. And you can use the physicality of walking to watch your mind in the same way that we use the physicality of breathing to get to know the mind. Because the physicality, you know, mindfulness of the body, whether walking or breathing, it's just an easier anchor, right? So the attention knows how to connect with the movement of the breath. But in that context, then when the mind arises, like some mood or some activity of mind arises, because we've had some continuity of attention with the breath, when the mind manifests in a strong way, then that balanced attention is more likely to see the mind, to know the mind. But if we're just lost in the mind, it's very unlikely the mind is going to know the mind. So to establish the mindfulness and where it's easy to establish it makes it more likely we're going to notice the mind. Like I could be sitting really calmly, you know, let's say outside, because the birds are so loud these days. You know, the robins have returned. You probably have noticed cardinals. And just bear with the sound. And then in another moment, I could be planning. But the thing is, because my mind was peacefully mindful with the sounds of the birds a few moments before, then when planning mind begins, I can see it in all of its living colors in a way that I normally wouldn't, because the contrast is so obvious. So that's why there's a real emphasis on calm. Its calm is good just in and of itself. But it also really uh, shows up all the other more neurotic states of mind, because in contrast, they just stand out. And then they can be seen as, in a sense, independent entities, independent events, this judging mind, this comparing mind, this worrying mind, this planning mind. Oh, that's just that, being known. But if we're just constantly swept along by that... Right. The other, then I mentioned this last week, when we have a walking lane, one of the advantages is we get to the end, and then we'll notice whether we've been wandering or not. But if we're walking around the golf course or something like that, it could be quite a while before we move. Oh, yeah, walking. Yeah, well, corpse meditation, and, and just generally reflecting on impermanence is a very useful, and in Buddhism is highlighted quite a bit, because... We need something strong to break us out of our spell. We're in this distracted, superficial spell, 
where we think the next kitchen gadget or the next restaurant is the most important thing in life. But it isn't. You know, so if you contemplate impermanence, it, it tends to uh, create a, a useful perspective in the mind like, what can I do with this life so that at the time of death or at the time when I'm losing a loved one, that what I've cultivated in this life will actually be useful? Yeah, so that's why that's emphasized. Thanks, Michael. Other thoughts, questions that come to mind? What have you been learning that you'd like to share with the group in your practice? It's always good to hear success stories. Uh, I just had an experience after you had been talked about hoping about separation tonight as I was sitting here just trying to hear. I, I did notice for a brief second that I was trying to find the point where I was hearing the actual spot within me somewhere because the hearing was occurring. And then I totally went off on different thoughts right after that. And I asked to myself, oh, yeah, you're just talking about that. Oh, I like, yeah, and that's how we break the spell because otherwise we're just lost in our thoughts about things. But that spell can break, and that's what we call a real moment of mindfulness when the mind isn't under the influence of the thoughts. It doesn't mean there aren't thoughts, but it's experiencing things in a more direct, unfiltered way not colored by thoughts, not colored by the attachment to thoughts. Thanks for sharing that. What else comes to mind? Yeah. Um, so, I spoke with you last week. I've had a lot of trouble cultivating devotedness and tranquility and simplicity. <laughs> um, and it's easy to come to a sense of relaxation, but I also find it very sluggish to be and have a stone thing. So, today I focus Thanks for bringing that up again. And this is a common occurrence, and you described it quite well, which means you're understanding your experience. So like I mentioned in the instructions ahead of, at the beginning of the sit, before the sit, the recognition and the interest are the activating, energizing qualities of the practice. So to emphasize them. And so for the recognizing, to give it a little more oomph, you can ask the mind, please name what it is that's being known or what it is that's being recognized. So you're, you're making it work, the mind work. Like if it's knowing the breath coming in, you're, then the mind notes that. Oh, breathing in is like this. Or the breath coming in is being known. Breathing in is being known. So that you can sort of uh, highlight the recognition part, that active part, that energizing part, by asking it to literally name or label what it is that's predominant or what it is that's being known. And the same thing with the interest by um, not just knowing the breath in a flash, in a moment, but that sustaining, like, that interest. That's what interest does. It sort of connects. The recognition is more like the connecting with the object, connecting what's being known. 
And then the interest is sustaining. It's like not forgetting it, not forgetting it, not forgetting it, not forgetting it. All the way through the in-breath. And then not forgetting it, not forgetting it, not forgetting it, all the way through the out-breath. So it's that sustaining. And that's energizing, actually, because the mind has to work at not forgetting. Because the tendency is to connect and then look for some other object to know. So that to make that effort to not forget, to not forget, to not forget, is really energizing. And will help keep the mind balanced with the tranquility that you're feeling. It's really a delicate operation. I mean, assuming you're not just not getting enough sleep. So assuming we're getting enough sleep, then it's still a very delicate operation to keep the energy high as the tranquility deepens. Because like I mentioned in another uh, related way, when we're feeling good, like when we're feeling tranquil, there's a very deep habit. I don't need to practice now because I'm feeling really good. So we come into this practice with, even if you wouldn't say it out loud, I just want to relax. So there we are relaxing, and it just seems to the mind like, well, I don't need to do anything because it feels so good to relax. So we need a motivation. And uh, in Buddhist practice, we talk about the motivation to understand, the motivation to awaken, to see what's not being seen. So that has to be actually a real force in the mind. Like we have to have a sense of the danger of not understanding the way things are. Like how, we see it all, I mean, even if we don't see it in our own life, we see it everywhere else. We see our friends, all of our colleagues. We see them suffering because they're not understanding things clearly. You know, we see it on the highways. People doing stupid things and almost killing themselves. So we know this is not... uh, This is not just something I'm exaggerating. We know how dangerous it is not to understand things clearly. Like how many people get married to people they shouldn't be getting married to or become (laughs) go out with people they shouldn't be going out with. All the different ways we suffer because the mind was not clearly comprehending what was going on. So we need that motivation. So you can whip that up by thinking about it. Even at the beginning of a sit, that will be energizing, right? Like, this is my opportunity to develop deep comprehension, to, uh, to develop the mind that can understand things deeply and clearly, to be free of mistakes, to be more skillful. I don't want to miss this opportunity. And so that motivation then will help balance the tendency to just give in to tranquility and take the nice break. I mean, tranquility is nice, but we stop learning if we go too far into it. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. So I'm having the exact opposite experience. <laughs> and it's just like gradually getting more and more difficult for me to find that tranquil space. And it's like, <coughs> kind of like just mm-hmm. things going in my head, like nonstop. And then I'll stop and I'll focus on, not focus, but acknowledge that that's what's going on. And what would happen if you just allowed that busy, crazy movement to continue? Well, that's what I've been doing. Mm-hmm. And what's the result? It just feels Yeah, but, <laughs> but remember, this is important. Even though superficially we come to this practice because we want to relax, we want to get tranquil, once we understand it a little bit more, 
we understand we're not coming to get tranquil or relaxed. We're coming to better understand the way that it is. So if our mind is like that, then the practice is to know the mind is like that, right? And now the question is, do you have faith or do you have enough confidence that there is something useful about getting to know the way that the mind is? So you, you might, now it might be useful to have some questions asked, like when the mind is monkey mind, sometimes it's called monkey mind, or sometimes in the business it's called like waterfall mind, like it's just a spewing, an endless spewing. Now the key about this, and I'll, this is a, a little bit of a deeper teaching, but it can be quite useful. So when you're observing the mind and body, and you feel like you have some steadiness, steady presence, and uh, it's sort of presenting itself, it's the way that it is, then to help sort of make use of that time, you can highlight three aspects. They're really the same thing, but just different angles on the same thing. And we call that same thing, in, in Buddhism, we call it Dhamma, the way it is, or Dharma, the way it is. So not the way we think it is. So the way it is means the way it is without ideas or concepts. So... The three aspects that helps us, helps the mind to see the way it is, to see Dhamma, is the impermanent nature, the unsatisfying nature, and the impersonal nature. Now you don't need all three, you can just use one. So there, what's your name? Anna. So there Anna is, you know, and she settles in, and because now the mind is waking up to something that she maybe hasn't woken up to or seen it as clearly before, but now because of the steadiness in her practice, she sees that there's a lot of stuff moving. Now, most of us wouldn't allow ourselves to see that because it's too disconcerting. So we just start thinking about something. You know, we wouldn't stay steady and relaxed with that state of mind because we want our mind to be comprehensible. We want it to make sense. We want it to be orderly. We want it to behave. But it actually can be, I mean, I, I don't exactly know what Anna's experienced, but it, it could easily be a sign of some steadiness that the mind is willing to present itself as it actually is, which is all over the place. Just, And it's interesting then, now to, to maintain that steadiness and not fall into an aversive state with it, you have to continue the investigation, because that will allow the continuity, and the continuity keeps things calm. No, no, the movement. So that's where I was going. So probably the easiest of those three, although basically you should investigate which of those three is most interesting, but you might start with impermanent. So as that stuff is doing this, and like this is what you did with your hands. So that's that movement with your hands. That's, a, that's representing just movement, right? Everything's moving. So instead of the content, like the thought that's moving, notice the movement of the thought. That's what's relevant. It's all moving. The energy of the mind, and maybe, perhaps, the energy of the body is moving. And you can even, if you need an anchor, you can just periodically say that, oh, this is movement. This is change. Change is like this. The unfixed nature of the mind is like this. The moving, changing nature of the mind is like this. And then you can ask yourself, is it satisfying or unsatisfying? Well, this is unsatisfying. Oh, the unsatisfactory nature of the mind is like this. Is this movement personal or impersonal? It's impersonal. I'm not doing this. 
the impersonal nature of the mind is like this. So you can use these three lenses. They're called, this is a wisdom reflection, to, to contemplate the impermanence or the changing nature, the unsatisfactory nature, and the impersonal nature of phenomena of whatever's being known is really useful. But the mind needs to be relatively stable. It has to trust that it's okay just to let things be. You're not asking it to be this way. And your job is just to understand the way that it is. And the only reason you would move your attention away from that is if the aversion to it got so strong that you started to reinforce an aversive reaction to experience. And we don't want to train the mind to be aversive to experience because we're pretty good at that. So it would be better to then do something else. And I'll, next week we'll do some loving kindness practice. That's always something you can do as an alternative when what's predominant is really difficult to be with without aversion. And you can do loving kindness practice and some other practices that I'll talk about next week. And I'll send the email out tomorrow probably, but Thursday for sure. And then feel free to read through the loving kindness instructions and, and just begin to experiment. They're pretty clear, I think. And it's a pretty simple practice, and I know, I know a number of you know a little or a lot about it already. And you can just start incorporating, do 10 minutes at the beginning of your sit, or 10 minutes at the end of your sit, or once during the week just do the metta, the loving-kindness practice alone. Um, but that sounds great, Anna, and I would just use uh, wisdom contemplation to gain more steadiness, more acceptance of what's happening. And it's a little after nine, so let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. It's really okay. Some of what was said tonight will sink in, some of it won't, but that's okay. Let's just take a few moments of silence together. And perhaps a feeling of gratitude for these ancient teachings. How many women, how many men have done their practice in their busy lives over the centuries, had some insight, developed their practice, shared it as best they could, and we get to be the grateful recipients of their, or this wisdom stream, really. And now it's up to us to do the best we can to cultivate mindfulness, wisdom, and compassion in our lives, and to be a force for good to live our practice, model our practice, share it in appropriate ways. So may this be so. And thanks again, everyone, for coming. I'll see you next week, or most of you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.